Welcome to the Creek Vault Podcast, where we discuss the latest news, laws, and trends affecting your industry. Welcome or welcome back to the Creek Vault Podcast. I'm your host, George Lepinotis. I'm joined today by two of my personal colleagues, uh, Brian Heaton, Director and Manager of our Business Acquisitions and Securities Practice Group, and Bob Greising, a longtime standing member of that practice group. Gentlemen, thank you for being with us. Glad to be here. Thanks, George. Uh, Brian, I want to start with you. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your practice here at Creek DeVault? Sure. Our our middle market uh, kind of focus here at Creek DeVault is on family-held businesses, um, just smaller middle market companies. We do uh, work for people who maybe don't aren't big enough to have their own general counsel and need us to serve in that role. And so we're doing a whole host of uh, corporate services for them in that department and really serving as their outside GC. And then uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit about M&A today, but in that space, we'll also serve larger clients who maybe bring us in to be their M&A specialists and things like that. But anything that, that would people would need on the corporate side, contracts, transaction, things like that. Yeah, I'm remiss that I didn't give the title of today's episode. It is, in fact, uh, we are looking at a 2022 dealscape, talking about the mergers and acquisitions market. Um, and it's, it's good that you say that because in the lifespan of a company and the legal services that we provide during a company's lifetime, uh, that merger or acquisition can often be the largest of our transactions, but also sometimes the last of them. So kind of fun that we're starting at the back of the chain. Right. Uh, yeah. Bob, you also have a lot of experience in that. Uh, tell us a little bit about your practice. I know you do a lot of mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, I do. Um, and that represents uh, the business group's activities in this area. And George, you're right when you're talking about a, a transaction like this. Most of the time, it's an exit, oftentimes for a founding uh, uh, owner, uh, but also we do succession between generations and so on. But it is a more significant transaction. I describe it more as the culmination of a plan that's been in place from day one. When you start a business, you ought to be planning for its exit because at some point you're going to have to transition ownership, whether it is to management, to your children, to a third party. And that's what we're there for to help them from sort of a, don't want to say cradle to grave, but I'll say cradle to grave, that we're there from the beginning through uh, the end uh, end game of, for the business. And it's funny because you have been a mentor to my practice, and in some of our discussions about the practice of law and the corporate practice of law, one of the things that I always see you do at the beginning of a company is almost plan for its longevity and its exit. Because when you're forming a company, you're almost already starting to think about where it might end up. Correct. Uh, you want to position the company for opportunities to take advantage of things that may come, things that you do voluntarily because you're planning the exit, or you may get a surprise call and say, hey, we really like your company, and here's this ungodly amount of money that we're going to offer you <laughs> to sell. Well, and we're going to get to the ungodly money here in a little bit. Um, but before we do that, I did want to talk a little bit about what the phrases mean. Some of our listeners may have experience with mergers and acquisitions. We call that, uh, you know, as a, as a tagline for what these transactions are. Um, but, you know, when we start with the, the mergers of the M&A, let's just briefly touch on that. A merger is oftentimes two competitors or two like-minded companies coming together, isn't it? I would say the answer to that is yes, 
uh, a business that or an acquirer of business is looking at ways in which that acquisition is going to help it fulfill its strategic plans and objectives. And so you may have diversified holdings because you might have somebody that wants to diversify out of a single line of business, but most of the time it's complementary to the business that's already there. One difference is in the private equity world, and this is Private equity has been around for a long time, but over the past 20 years, it really has become the driver of the transaction world. Uh, it seems to me the things that they look for are things that trickle down to the non-private equity uh, transactions. And they'll have multiple lines of business that they pursue. So you could have very different lines of business in the same private equity holdings. But uh, most of the time, you're dealing with someone that is compatible with you. And it's actually one of the challenges of how do I talk with someone that wants to buy me when they might be my competitor if it doesn't work. And so there are ways that we can help protect against that. Brian, in your experience, when you're dealing with a merger, a value-driven merger, first off, economics don't always play the entire role, right? There's other factors that you might consider when merging. But what are your, you know, what are your experience as far as uh, how do you go about successfully transitioning from uh, being competing, competing with a business to, to merging with it. Yeah, in some ways we're fortunate we get to work on the transaction and leave it to the business folks to uh, figure out all the integration plans and things like that. So we get to say, okay, have fun, you know, <laughs> uh, work out, work on that as you go. But you know, in, in our in my experience, I do a lot of work in the healthcare space, and so I would say it's funny that the term is mergers and acquisitions. But in a lot of cases, that's actually become one of the less common deal structures because a buyer is trying to isolate liability. We're trying to look at what's the right way to allocate risk for a business prior to the time you own it and afterwards. And in a merger, simply, you're really taking the entire company that you're acquiring, um, all the good and all the bad. And so that is a lot of times for someone looking to acquire a business, not something they want to take on. And so a lot of times when we're looking at a merger, we're looking at a regulated industry. We have a great financial institutions practice here if we're doing transactions with two banks. A lot of times that's set set up as a merger um, in healthcare. And that could be for a host of reasons. Licensure, you want to keep things consistent. and, And without getting too into the weeds, we're trying to identify, are there different parts of the the target that need to come over more seamlessly to the acquirer um, so that they can continue to run the business and, and really get started right away. And a merger can accomplish that a lot easier than some other deal structures. If I could add on to what Brian said, part of our role is to get the deal done. And so part of our early conversations is what are the requirements and what are the impediments? And we try to find a navigate a path through those to get the deal done, but also to get it done efficiently, and so that the post transaction business will continue to meet the objectives of the parties. Yeah, and I think that's one hundred percent correct. And when I look at what you were saying as I was listening to you about how mergers are maybe not quite as prominent of a vehicle, I I agree with that. And I think that merging the two, it's if there are reasons to merge. If there's something that must be protected, a provider code, a license, a permit, where the entities, both it's, it's vital that both entities survive, then the merger really plays. But in most of our transactions, uh, the acquisition seems to be the more prominent vehicle that we see. Yeah, and it comes down to sometimes, um, when you talked about competitors, or maybe you hear the phrase, a merger of equals, um, 
there may not, uh, you know, when you have a, a target being acquired by someone else, it's very clear who is buying who. A merger can allow for uh, both parties to say, no, we're still here and this is still us. And no, we didn't get acquired. It was a merger. Now, the name of the company and where it's headquarters and who's CEO and who's board chair is going to maybe send some signals that that might be a little right. bit different, That's but right. it's, yeah. um, it allows some people, I don't want to say safe face, but it gives people the opportunity to maybe um, put out to the market what the transaction was in a way that different than if you were doing, say, a stock sale or something like that. That's right. Yeah. Now, Brian did touch on something, Bob, that I think that you and I have dealt with in the past, and that is the uh, when, we're, when we're transitioning to the acquisition, there's, there's really... And there's probably more than two ways to do it, but two predominant ways. You're either going to do an asset sale where you're selling the assets of the company, or you're going to do a stock sale where you're selling the whole company, right? The interest in the company. Um, do you tend to see more of one or the other? And what are the reasons for that? Yeah, we probably overall have a slight uh, leaning towards the asset transaction. Um, However, uh, it depends on who has the bargaining clout for, to help structure the transaction. In general, very high level, sellers like to sell stock and buyers like to buy assets. It has to do with risk management. If you sell stock, then all the warts and barnacles that are in the box, you're selling the box, and the buyer takes the box, whatever is in it. In an asset deal, you open the box and you pick out, well, I'll take that asset, I'll leave the other ones. I'll assume that liability, I'll leave the other ones. And so a buyer likes to have that flexibility. A seller would rather just sell the whole box in general. Uh, there are other elements to that, tax planning, uh, personal financial wealth planning. Um, sometimes it doesn't make a difference. S-corps oftentimes have very little difference from a, a tax perspective on these. Uh, but the big bright line is, if I'm a buyer, I'm going to want to do assets. If I'm a seller, I'm going to want to do stock. And it, this is also one of those golden rule tests. The buyers have the gold, and so they often will set the rules. Yeah, yeah, especially when, um, when they, in, in markets like we talk about 2021 in the dealscape, um, companies are getting top dollar for their, their interest nowadays. So it's hard to walk away from some of the offers that, put on, that are put on the table. When, when we talk about, and let's, let's shift right to it, right? We're talking about the acquisition. When you're dealing with an acquisition, you have value buyers who might be your competitors looking to grow their business, uh, but you also have private equity. Let's touch on private equity first, because the value, I think, is, is a pretty known concept, right? I mean, Coke might buy Pepsi, um, and there's obvious reasons for wanting to do that. But what is private equity? We hear it. We've talked about it. A lot of people understand it. But for those of, of our listeners, maybe a, a, a business person, a, a mid-market business owner who's heard private equity, what is the actual concept? What I found interesting is that most people don't understand that private equity is not necessarily um, a private group of individuals. It's just not a, it's not a publicly traded marketplace, right? Yeah, and that's right. If you take a look at sources of money, every buyer is going to have to find money. Uh, public companies go to the public markets. They'll have capital formation. They'll raise a lot of money and use that for their business development or their war chest. Private equity avoids the public markets, but there's still a fund that they put together. And the private equity companies will go out and they'll establish a fund and they'll go out to wealthy resources. A lot of insurance companies, some wealthy individuals, 
uh, endowment funds that are trying to generate a return for their investment in excess of what they can get just by putting it into the public markets or the treasury bills. And, and they will have a need, they'll have a, um, a profile that they're looking at, and they'll also have a time frame. They'll raise the money and, and they'll say, well, we need to spend it, and we're going to close this fund in seven years. And so the private equity guys have got to spend the money. And that's one of the variables that we've seen come into play with the activity over the last few years. There were a lot of funds that were developed and, and, and formed, you know, in the 10 to 12 years ago. And they're, and they're nearing the end of their lives. They need to spend the money. Well, let's talk about that more, Brian. What, what are these lifespans of these private equity funds? And why do they even have lifespans? Why can't they go on in perpetuity? Well, it goes to what Bob was talking about with, with wanting to see a return. And so, um, you know, it was interesting. I was um, at an event recently. Both Bob and I have been involved with Association um, for Corporate Growth here in Indiana in the local chapter. And we had a capital market showcase event recently. And there was different capital providers there, private equity funds and MES Finance and a lot of different groups. And um, it, it was interesting to hear some of them sell themselves on being a more long-term hold versus a short-term hold. Because as you look as, as a seller, and you say, okay, well, this is attractive to me, but the uncertain one of the things that people get nervous about in selling to private equity is, are they going to come in and strip it down for parts? And, 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 you know, is that the thing I want for this thing that I've built and spent my whole life doing? And so, you know, a lot of times what we're seeing now is maybe those holds getting a little longer to make it more attractive for a seller to say, we're not going to sell in three years. But to, to Bob's point, if your fund is, those are set up and they have a, an end date. And so, it's coming, and you have to make sure that, that those investments are made, and um, they've got to make sure that they're being true to their investors because those investors could just go put money in the stock market and write it out, but they're looking for extraordinary returns above and beyond that. That creates the value that private equity can make to their investors while they're trying to balance then being a good suitor for, for the people who might be targets to sell their company. Right. And like Bob said, Bob was mentioned that a lot of the, the money that goes into private equity, the, the funding mechanism can be pension funds, retirement funds, even sovereign wealth, right? Whether it's state here in the United States, I think a lot of state pension funds have invested in private equity. Um, university endowments can invest in private equity. Correct. Uh, different countries, uh, Saudi Arabia being one that I can think of off the top of my head, has a large program of investing in private equities. But they want their money back in, in a specific period of time, which, as, as Brian mentioned, that creates a dichotomy for the potential seller or conundrum because you don't know, you know, let's say it's a 10-year fund, what's going to happen in year 10 if they haven't yet sold my company? Right. Um, yeah, there are other alternatives that are out there as, as acquirers as well that don't have that same constraint. They're often called family offices where they also have a, a cadre or a group of wealthy individuals, wealthy families, and they deploy similar objectives as the private equity groups, but they tout themselves as we are we're going to sell when the time is right, and it's a long-term hold. We know some here locally in Indianapolis that have bought businesses that they've held for 15, 20, 25 years, and and they run them well, and they make a lot of money off of them, so right. why sell them? Right. The sale decision by the private equity guys is to monitor, monetize their holdings to satisfy their their investors, their limited partners for the most part, and also then to take those monies and redeploy it into another alternative. So they start at the low end and sell at the high end on a recurring basis. Well, and you know that leads me to the next t topic that I wanted to discuss with you guys, and that is really the um, what makes a company a candidate for these private equity investments. And, um, you know, I was thinking about the difference between private equity 
and venture capital. And venture capital really has the ability to invest in companies that don't make profits, right? When private when venture capitalists were putting money into Facebook, for instance, it had not seen a profit and was years away from making one. With private equity, you really do as a seller and as a buyer have to position the business to be in a really good spot, right? Profitability is very important. It is, but I think, you know, it really comes back to, we, we use lots of phrases of private equity and we talk about all these broad swatches of types of organizations. It really comes down to the individual relationship that you have with a potential suitor and is does this fit the right way? Because, you know, what we're seeing is you have a lot of, of businesses that are, are held by, family businesses that have been in, in there for multiple generations and uh, they, people currently who are probably five years away from retiring they were thinking their kids were going to take it over, but now their kids just want to make TikTok videos. Yeah. And so they are trying to figure out where well, do I... That's a new spin, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is that so, a 2022 deal point? Yeah. Yeah. So they're trying to figure out where, where do we go from here, and they're looking at trying to find who can help fill the personnel void, the management void that we have. And COVID impacted that. Um, there's been a lot of factors where where you have businesses out there that are really good, strong businesses, but they just don't have the talent to really take that next step. And so when you're looking at maybe someone who just wants to invest money, there's plenty of people out there who will, will invest money into a company, even businesses that aren't that profitable, um, and and because they're trying to deploy capital and maybe your interest rate is higher, things like that. Right now, what's what people are coming in from private equity and saying, we've got managed people who have been on management teams, we've got outside CEOs, we'll bring them in. And in three years, we will be able to get you from X profitability to Y profitability. And this is going to be great for everybody. And that's really what, what they're trying to do from a value proposition. Well, now shifting away from the what I'll call the glamorous part of the money and going to what we do on a day-to-day basis, which is the the next step, right? Let's just, let's fast forward. You now have, you've owned a company, whether it's a family company, it's whether something you entrepreneured and started. You have uh, an investor coming in to buy your, your, your company, whether it's private equity or something else. The next step really after you have a signed letter of intent or some sort of signed agreement is due diligence. And everybody's favorite. Everybody's favorite, right. It sounds like it it really is akin to invasive testing, right? I mean, you're you're looking we everywhere you can. think it is verification or validation of assumptions, <laughs> but your phrasing is a little bit more colorful, George. That's right. That's right. We're here for color. Um, tell me, what is it? Bob, you had, a, you had a great phrase earlier. We are, our job is to help our clients get the deal done. But sometimes during due diligence, that goal can conflict with the reality of what, what, what's underneath the cover. Yeah, uh, due diligence, I think, has um, multiple purposes, the least of which is to kill the deal. Both parties want the deal to work, and they, as I said just a few minutes ago, it's really trying to validate assumptions from a buyer standpoint. They've talked with the owner, they've seen the financials, they've done some preliminary assessment, they know the party from the industry. And now it's like, well, we think this works because we think it's going to fit our objective X or Y. And the due diligence process is intended to verify and validate that. It also, though, is intended to scare up the skeletons. Uh, So it is possible that you will have something come up that is so um, unconquerable that the buyer is going to walk away. And over the course of my uh, practice, that has happened, but it's really a very limited number of times. We talk about the current dealscape, and I think one of the things that we've seen 
all three of us have seen make a great rise over the past few years is reps and warranties insurance, right? So you've done due diligence, you've identified potential risks, potential liabilities. Uh, You also, during that time, can secure an insurance policy to protect both the buyer and the seller. Correct. Tell me a little bit about where you're seeing RWI and what it's bringing to deals nowadays. Yeah, it's actually a very efficient tool, um, and it's been around for a little bit more than 20 years. I mean, deals, of course, have been around since, like, the first businesses. You go back to the even the Mayflower coming across was actually, at its core, an economic initiative, entrepreneurial initiative to tap into the new world. The risks had always been shared by the two parties to the transaction, and the due diligence is what did that. There were tools to help balance that and and to say, okay, we're going to, on the economic risk of this, this is how we're going to balance it. So parties would give representations and warranties, and then historically you, the seller would indemnify the buyer against things that weren't, didn't match up with those reps and warranties. 20 years or so, uh, the insurance industry started proposing a product that would insure against deficiencies in those representations and warranties, now called RWI. And it's a way for a certain amount of money, because uh, you'll pay a premium and you'll have typical insurance components like a deductible concept and so on called retention in the RWI world, uh, that you do shift that risk of loss to the insurance company. And it's very helpful to the sellers. Um, it, it helps gives them certainty. It helps accelerate their receipt of the closing proceeds. It minimizes the dollars that continue to be at risk. There will be some at-risk dollars in this world called retention. Um, And so as a seller, I will retain an amount of money. Before RWI, that might have been 10, 15, 20 percent as part of the indemnity pool that would be available. With RWI, it's like less than 1 percent. Um, that that range overall and typically shared by the buyers is one to two percent. So if it's a one percent retention, buyer picks up half a percent, I pick up half a percent. And so that's a great way to accelerate receipt, minimize my ongoing risk. And the sellers like it, you know, a phrase I've heard is peace of mind. I know that I can, the dollars I'm going to get, and I'm not going to have to worry about somebody chasing me. Carve out is fraud is not covered. So if I'm a bad actor, or if I've defrauded my buyer, I'm still going to be at risk. But nobody believes that they're a frauder. Yeah. And, you know, I think with all insurance policy, fraud is not covered, right? right? Anything that, any deliberate uh, deception would, would, would obviously exclude right. coverage. But, uh, you know, RWI sounds great. But like any great thing, there there's a downside, right? What is the downside of, of reps and warranties insurance in 2022? And for our buyers and sellers and our listeners who are interested in the topic, what is it you have to keep an eye out when you enter into an RWI policy? There's a number of different things. I mean, I think Bob touched on costs. So you need to have the deal have a certain amount of size to make sure that it can really validate the, the expense that you're going to have of the policy. Uh, I think a lot of times people view rep and warranty insurance policies as the the savior when they run into a diligence issue kind of down the line. Well, that's not going to cure all ills, and they're going to do their own due diligence. Um, Their insurance companies are not in the business of paying out claims, right? And so it's not going to solve. They're going to, in some cases, ask for more diligence than maybe you were going to do up front. And in what we've seen sometimes is people run into a timing issue with a diligence problem, and they say, well, we'll just go get insurance, well, that's late, oftentimes very late in the game. And, and it's just going to delay the process further uh, because they're going to have to go through all of their, their traps to make sure that things work out right. So it, it can be a really powerful tool. We talked about mergers earlier. In a merger, who's left 
to provide indemnity. Right. Well, so it's a, you know it can be a really great tool, and we're seeing it used more and more. And I think premiums are coming down in a way that it can be more attractive for more deals. But the cost has got to be right. You've got to make sure that the deal uh, is going to be able to support it from you know just the diligence perspective. If you've got a bunch of warts, you're going to have warts whether you have an, an RWI policy or not. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, other kind of you know before we wrap up, I know we've uh, we can talk for hours about this stuff, right? Um, but our listeners are probably uh, not quite so um, uh, interested. But when we look at our 2021 highlights, right, we're at that time of the year where we've gotten our studies, the American Bar Association, other types of, of um, organizations have put out information on what 2021 was, uh, what the highlights were. What do you know? What, 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 are, what are buyers and sellers looking at and what's, what's popular now? I, I would say, you know, really the, the overall theme is that it's really a seller's market. Um, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, like you mentioned, the ABA study that comes out, and that talks about the scope of representations, limitations on indemnification, different covenants that people are making to one another. And the general theme I would say is because there are a lot of businesses that are getting approached uh, by unsolicited, even by buyers who have cash to deploy and whatnot, you're seeing multiples go higher and people are interested in selling and, and maybe an acceleration in deal activity that maybe would have happened in the next three or four years. But because people are maybe burnt out with COVID and these, you know, we talked about the transition issues that people were having, it's really accelerated a lot of activity, but that's given sellers a lot of power to decide what kind of deal they want to do. And so when we look at things like, uh, percentage of purchase price and what cap that's going to look like on indemnity or deductibles for those kind of things or the scope of representations people are, are trying to make. It's shifting, in my my view, much more to be seller friendly. You can get more concessions at this point than you than you may have been able to a few years ago. Yeah, and I agree with that. I, I think the um, the sophistication sophistication is not the right word. The experienced approach of the multiple buyers is helping because the buyers are competing against a limited pool. A good company will have more suitors than it, it than it cares to deal with. I've been working currently with one that is having to narrow. Well, I only want to talk with three or four people. Right. They could talk with seven, eight, or ten people. Yeah. Yeah. There is a crunch on management time because, lo and behold, you still need to run your business. <laughs> and this becomes, in, in essence, a nearly full-time focus. And so there are ways of managing that. But I do agree with Brian that the sellers continue to be in a good position in terms of uh, comparing where it was maybe a few years ago. After 2008, you wanted to be a buyer because you could really pick and choose. And now that things have shifted, there is some concern about what does it mean for 2022? We have obviously some international events going on. Those international events impact the financial markets. Those financial markets then impact what the banks are willing to lend. And this is still a fine, a leveraged transaction industry. The, there are very few people that will write a check for the entire purchase price out of their own bank account. Right. So they need to work with the lending sources. The banks have been very good about that. They've been very competitive. And over the past couple of years, their requirements have eased up because they want to be a player in the industry. Yeah. I think all that has played a role in making it a seller's market. Yeah, and I think even when you you know, you know talk about the banks um, and even with a rise in interest rate and some of the inflationary numbers we're seeing, still historic lows. You know, Correct. numbers that probably even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, were unth- unthinkable for the, the cost of debt. So I agree. Um, you know, shifting a little bit, guys, as we wrap up, I did want to 
um, focus on the post-transaction. When these companies sell, when it's done, you're not necessarily, management isn't necessarily, the owners even, aren't necessarily walking away from these companies. Oftentimes, things proceed as as they were, correct? I would say yes. And um, the facets of how that is and um, the facets entailed in that sort of transition um, are really important. What are the objectives of the owner? One thing we can do another podcast on if you want is on earnouts. I'm seeing more and more of that on earnouts um, because there is a value gap. And one of the ways to address that is for the owner to say, yeah, I'll take that risk. And so I'm going to continue to have my finger on the pulse because I want to make my earnout numbers. There is oftentimes the need for transition to support for management skill sets. Buyers come in sometimes with a management team, but most of the time they're going to be dependent upon the target company's management team to continue, at least most of them. And then you negotiate that. Owners will oftentimes have to commit to at least a short-term transition plan, introduce you to customers and, and a P, you know, make sure that the customers know everything's going to be okay. Sometimes it's longer. Now, sometimes I've seen two, three, five years. Depending on the age of the owner, they may have that longevity. There's also oftentimes a rollover feature where the sellers actually are required to retain an economic position in the buyer. Right. And then they look for round two and they double up. Yeah. And I heard a presentation by someone who was on his third or fourth roll, and That's it right. was really good for, for him and his family to generate some real wealth. Yeah. So all those features uh, – move into a continued relationship between the seller uh, for one reason or another. And I, I think it's also the key issue we hear from our clients and businesses is workforce, workforce, workforce. They cannot attract and retain the people that they need to run the business, no matter what industry they're in. And when you see a seller, the owner sticking around and saying, I'm going to continue to be part of this, I believe in this transaction, that's a lot easier to convince people to stick around uh, in, a, in, a, in otherwise fickle circumstances where they could say, wow, this creates a lot of unrest and uncertainty for me, and therefore I'm going to go do something else. So that's another key part of it that I think we're trying to well, you know, I think we could go on for, for a lot longer. That brings up other issues such as non-competes and, sure. and, and, and restrictive covenants. But um, that's a great start, guys. I, you know, for the listeners that are interested for more information on the topic, I know you're both thought leaders here at the firm. Uh, I think they can find more information at com, where both of your bios are on the website, as well as links to some other articles you've both written uh, in regards to this topic. Um, appreciate you being here with us. As we joked beforehand, uh, you know, there's still the billable hours, so this is a very expensive <laughs> podcast. But uh, appreciate the time, appreciate the insight, and to our listeners, thanks for listening. Hope to hear you, hope to see you soon, and uh, cover another topic on the Creek Vault podcast.